Good morning, everyone. You guys are awake for it being only 8 a.m.? Let's go ahead and, uh, if you guys don't have notes, I think the notes are in the back of the, in the, back of the room. You can grab yourself a set of notes. We got a lot more people in here today, so we're going to do a little bit of a review, quite a bit of review, and then hopefully we'll get into Leviticus a decent amount, get the first nine, ten chapters done in the book of Leviticus. I'm excited to get started. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for um, waking us up, for bringing us to fellowship with one another um, around your word, around the gospel. Um, thank you for bringing us here to, uh, to be able to enjoy our relationship together, but also in communion with you um, through the gospel, the, the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that our time in the word would be um, edifying to us, it would be encouraging, it would be challenging, that we would be able to see um, things from your word that maybe we didn't see before, that it will encourage us, um, that will help us to get a fuller picture of who you are, a deeper appreciation for what Christ has accomplished for us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we need to do quite a bit of review. Um, one, because we have a few people in here that haven't been in here, and then two, because it's been two weeks since we went through Exodus, and if you're anything like me, then you probably forgot a lot of what we covered in Exodus. And so, let's kind of review what we've been talking about so far. Uh, week one, so we're in week four of the series on Leviticus, and we are just about to start Leviticus. So it's a good thing if you're here, you haven't missed any Leviticus yet, but you have missed us setting up the context of the Pentateuch and the context of the narrative that Leviticus is set within. And so um, in week one, we talked about the, the context of the Pentateuch and where Leviticus is within the Pentateuch, and what do we say is the center of the first five books of the Bible? This is a warm-up question. I'm, I'm seeing if you guys are awake. You guys sounded awake earlier. Yes, before the, what's the, what's the center of the, the center, central book of the Pentateuch? Leviticus, good. And the central chapter or event in the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And sadly, I was just talking to Caleb about this, um, we are not going to be here in two weeks when we actually cover the Day of Atonement. And so I'm going to be the, the most exciting chapter of the book of Leviticus to Caleb to teach to you guys. And so I get to do all the hard work, and he gets to just come in and hit it out of the park. Um, but I trust he's going to do a good job with it. So yeah, so Leviticus, the center of the Pentateuch, thematically um, and contextually as far as, and, and literally, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, literarily, not literally, but literarily, the center of the Pentateuch, the Day of Atonement, the center of Leviticus. And so then we talked through... Um, just kind of this, we developed this theology of the mountain, the mountain of God, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, uh, from Genesis and Exodus, and we, so we started in Genesis, we talked about how um, starting in the Garden of Eden, we are learning that the Garden of Eden was this first mountain of the Lord. We talked about how the rivers flow out of Eden and water flows downward, so it tells us that, that Eden was kind of set up on a hill, up on a mountain. The Garden of Eden, or the, the cosmos in general, represent God's tabernacle. The Garden of Eden represents, within God's tabernacle, 
what does the Garden of Eden represent? Within the tabernacle, it's the Holy of Holies, right? It's a special dwelling place. Um, outside of the garden would represent the holy place, and then outside of Eden further east would represent the outer courts. And so we had this picture of the garden being the Holy of Holies, the holy place in the outer courts. Now, if we trace the history, if you guys look out at your sheet, if we trace the history from Adam, and on that first picture there, we see to the Tower of Babylon or to the Tower of Babel, we see this movement from the first mountain in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God, down to um, Cain's city. So Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden. They're taken away from the presence of God, east of the mountain. Cain is driven further east. He builds a city um, uh, after his son's name, not for the Lord. And then uh, mankind falls further into sin, and so God sends them uh, into judgment by bringing the floodwaters. Now, out of the floodwaters, God starts over in this kind of new creation, this new um, Garden of Eden-type situation with Noah and his family, right? And then they, uh, they park their ark on what? On Mount Ararat, another mountain. So we have a new creation with a new Adamic figure, Noah, starting over on a new mountain, and that mountain was located in the vicinity of Eden. And so we have this kind of restart of creation with Noah and his family. Noah, uh, Noah um, offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Um, and then shortly after this scene or this, um, this uh, event in Genesis, the Tower of Babel happens, or the event of the Tower of Babel happens. We have people gathering from the east, they come together, and they decide to build a tower for the glory of God? No, for the glory of man, right, for the glory of man. They want to build a tower to the heavens, trying to make their own mountain to God, and what does God do? He judges them by confusing their tongues and then sending them out into exile um, and sending the nations out from, from there. But God still has this goal of fellowshipping with man in his presence on his holy mountain. And so uh, God covenants with Abraham to resolve that problem, resolve that tension, right? So the rest of Genesis kind of shows us how um, the people of God are moving, or God's the people on earth and the people of God are moving further and further away from God's presence. And the book of Genesis ends down in Egypt with the death of Joseph, the death of um, of Jacob. And so we have, if we look at the overall scope of Genesis, you see man starting on the mountain of God in, in the Garden of Eden, in his Holy of Holies, in perfect communion with God, enjoying perfect relationship with him in Sabbath day rest. That's what man was created for. But then it ends down in Egypt, far from the mountain of God, in slavery. You have life they end in death, um, freedom with God, ending in slavery. So in the book of Exodus, if we move forward in the story, two weeks ago we covered the book of Exodus, Exodus is God starting to create a way for man to come back into fellowship with him and to meet with him in his special presence on the mountain of God. And so um, God meets with Moses, and then... Um, we're going to really cover this really quickly. God rescues Egypt, or God rescues Israel out of Egypt, 
through the waters of judgment, and he brings them to a mountain, right? Mount Sinai. And Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai as this mediator between God and Israel. And so um, now at the, at the end of uh, the book of Exodus, <clears throat> we talked about how um, from Exodus 25 to Exodus 32, when Moses has this big encounter with God, this mediation between him and God on behalf of Israel, we talked about the building of the tabernacle in uh, chapters 25 to 32. And then in between the building of the tabernacle and um, kind of the institution of, this, of the tabernacle worship, we have this scene where Israel is falling into sin and they build this golden calf, right? And this shows us a picture about what God is going to do with Israel. Uh, what is God's response to Israel falling into idolatry? What does he want to do to them? He wants to destroy them. What does Moses say to God in response to that? What does Moses offer in the place of Israel? He offers himself, right? He offers to stand in the place of Israel, to stand as mediator between them. Now, God says, I will go with you, Moses, into the land. I will clear out your enemies. I will go with you, but I'm not going to go with you, plural. I'm not going to go with you, Israel, and I will not dwell with you as a nation in the land. What is Moses' response? What is Moses' response to that? Is that good enough for Moses? Is Moses okay with going into the land and God not dwelling with them in the land? No. He says, no, I want you to go with me, with us, um, as a nation. And so that shows us that the heart of the covenant with, with, with Israel was not necessarily just the land in and of itself. It was the land and the presence of God in the land dwelling with them, right? And so God... Um, God uh, agrees with Moses to go with them into the land. Um, they finish the, the, the construction of the tabernacle and the rest of the book of Exodus. And now I want us to go to Exodus chapter 40, and I want us to remember who was the only person up to this point that was allowed to go and ascend the mountain of God and meet with God face to face? Moses. He was that special mediator between God and Israel who could put one hand on Israel and one hand on God and mediate that relationship. Now, I want us to look at um, Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, and there's a, there's a tension that comes and enters into the story here at this point. <clears throat> then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's a huge event. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So who is the only one that was able to meet with the Lord? And who is not allowed to enter into the tent of meeting right here? That creates a problem in our minds, isn't it? Well, if Moses is not allowed to enter the tent of meeting, then who is allowed to enter into the tent of meeting? The tabernacle, <clears throat> the word tabernacle means, you know, God's dwelling place. Here it talks about God's tent of meeting. And so the first few chapters of Leviticus kind of answers this question. How is Israel going to meet with God in his dwelling place in order to make it an actual tent of meeting? So how does the tabernacle, the dwelling place, turn into a tent of meeting? And the first few chapters of Leviticus kind of talk through that process through the sacrificial system. And so what we're going to see is the sacrificial system is the way by which we can enter into God's 
tent, God's presence, the mountain of God now localized in the tabernacle, and that this, is a, this worship experience is, um, is all about and leading towards communion with God, which was the end that God created man for. It's the end that um, he saved Israel out of Egypt for. <clears throat> Let me pull up my notes real quick. So we're going to be talking kind of just overview of these um, sacrifices. We're definitely not going to go through every detail, but what we're going to try and see is, is the drama that's moving throughout the sacrifices and try to build a theology of what's going on here. So if you look um, down in your notes, there's a little chart there. Um, there's the different offerings that are there. There's a ritual emphasis, and there's the meaning. Um, before we jump into those, Leviticus 1, 1 to 6, 7 gives laws for different types of offerings. The ascension offering, the tribute, a peace offering, purification offering, and then reparation offerings or expiation offerings, the, the idea of cleansing of sin. So the instructions in chapters, uh, chapters 1 to 6, first part of 6, are given to the laity, the, the normal Israelite worshipers. This is what they're supposed to do when they bring their offerings to the tabernacle. And then chapters 6 and 7 give laws to the priests in regards to these offerings, okay? Um, the ascension offering, the tribute offering, which accompanies the ascension offering, and the peace offerings represent an ideal worship scenario. So if there's no sin, if there's no sin at all, there's still some offerings that you do. So there's an ascension offering <clears throat> accompanied by a tribute offering, which would be that grain offering that they bring for the priests, and then um, the peace offering. And we're going to talk about what those things represent. If you were to sin, you would do a purification or repar reparation offering, and those were to help, those were to cleanse you of your sin to then bring you to that next stage of the sacrificial process, okay? So Leviticus gives us orders for these things. We're going to be talking about a little bit of this um, in a second. Look at Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, <clears throat> and this gives us just a basic kind of order of these offerings, a basic summary of what they would do. So this is after Aaron and his, and his sons are consecrated, <clears throat> and they're instituting this tabernacle service, and look at verse 22 of chapter 9. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. There's just this basic um, flow from sin to burnt to peace, and that's what you see represented there in the chart. So here's the name of the offering. The purification would be that sin offering. What happens there? There's, it's primarily focused on blood manipulation, so the spilling of blood. Um, we're going to talk more about what that means. What does it do? It expiates. It, it cleanses from sin. So then you move from purification, then you go to the burnt offering, which is this ascension offering, where you would completely burn up the animal. It's turned into smoke. And the meaning that we get behind that is the, this total consecration unto the Lord when you burn the whole animal. Again, we'll talk more about that in a second. And then thirdly, the peace offering, which is where you actually eat um, a meal with friends and family. The purpose and meaning of this is the fellowship with God and with one another around this, this, sacrificial, um, this sacrificial ritual. So that's there just to show you the, the, the general flow, the general order. Um, these are... Um, categories of different offerings, the ritual emphasis, 
and the meaning. Pretty straightforward there. <clears throat> the, the, the order is significant. Morales says this in his book. He says this. The goal for Israel always has been is fellowship and communion with God. That's why they were saved out of Egypt. That's why they were created. Because Yahweh God is holy, the source of life, however, the requirement for communion with God is utter and complete consecration, setting apart unto the Lord. Yet before consecration to God can become a possibility, Israel's sins must be dealt with. So you first have to deal with sin, and then you consecrate yourself unto the Lord, and then you can experience fellowship. Expiated, only a cleansed humanity may belong to Yahweh. The way to God, then, is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. So that's, that's the overall kind of theme or the ideas that, that sit behind the, the sacrifices. You guys with me so far? We're going to get into some of the weeds here, but we want to keep that overall theology in our minds. It gets really interesting as we talk through um, the sacrifices, um, which we're about to do in a second. So as we go into um, this ascent, this entering into the presence of God, there's this kind of drama. There's this drama that's worked out throughout the sacrifices. As we work through these, I hope my goal for the end of the day is that as you read Leviticus and as you're looking at the different sacrifices, you'll see the theological significance of what's happening when they do these things that really don't connect with us in our culture, in our time, and you'll see um, implications most likely, hopefully, uh, for the gospel and what Jesus is doing on our behalf um, on Calvary. <clears throat> so you look at the, on your sheet, uh, it says the cultic journey. We're going to trace a journey into the presence of God, ascending God's mountain into his presence. So the term offering comes from the same root word as to draw near. So the sacrificial offerings were the means by which Israel was to draw near to Yahweh. So now we're going to explore various aspects of the offerings that would bring the Israelite into God's presence. So we're going to see the sacrifices as a journey, as a journey up the mountain in the tabernacle. Does that sound exciting? I'm excited. <clears throat> I, didn't even have any co- I haven't even had coffee this morning, and I'm excited. All right, so the presentation rites. So the first thing that the, that the Israelite would do is they would go to their flock, and they would go get an animal right, a goat or a lamb or whatever, whatever it was for that particular offering. They go get an animal, and that animal had to be a certain way. What kind of animal would you get from your flock? Unblemished, right, an unblemished animal. Um, in Leviticus 22, verses 17 to 28, there's a lot of, there's a lot of descriptions on what would make a, an, an animal blemished, right? When I uh, preached on, on Malachi, um, that super long sermon that I wish I would have shortened a couple years ago. <clears throat> that super long sermon on Malachi talked about how Malachi, the, the, the Israel's problem in that book is that they were bringing bad worship to God. They were bringing animals that were blind, they were maimed, they were about to die, they had cancer. Now, you don't bring those types of animals to God. Why? Do those animals cost you anything? No. You go and you bring your best. You go and you bring an unblemished animal to the Lord. That teaches that, that sacrifice is supposed to cost something. So you would go and you bring the, the animal to the priest, and they would inspect it, and they would make sure that this was a worthy sacrifice to the Lord. 
So again, the lesson here is that approaching God costs something. And besides this, the animal had to be without blemish in order to symbolize a morally blameless life. The idea here is that I'm not blameless. I'm a sinner. I need this animal who is not, who is, who represents something that is blameless in order to take my place. I need that animal to take my place in the sacrifice. So, Approaching God costs something. The animal needs to be blemishless in order to represent, symbolize a morally blameless life in your place. We good so far? <clears throat> Think about um, what ends up happening in Israel and the temptations that could come out just from this type of sacrifice. Just from this first rite. If you know that sacrifice costs you a lot, are you going to be tempted to bring something that, maybe an animal that's blemished, Maybe an animal that you know is going to die soon, right? You might be tempted to do that. The priest might even be tempted to allow you to pass if you give him a little bit of money on the side, right? There's all these things that can happen within this presentation, right? But the point here is that you're bringing an offering to the Lord. You need to remember who you're offering to. So it needs to cost you something. It needs to be morally blameless in order to really take your place and represent that in the sacrifice. If you don't do those things, then, then then you're missing the point. So here's the presentation, right? So after you present the animal to the priest, then there's this hand-leaning right, the hand-leaning right. So you'll read this throughout Leviticus, and this is what happens is you grab the animal, and they would place their hands on the animal, and they would press down super hard, really hard. Now, in the Day of Atonement, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, there's this idea um, with the scapegoat, that the priest puts his hands on the head of the goat, and what does he do? He pronounces the sins of Israel over the goat, right? So when I was first reading through Exodus, or through Leviticus, and I was reading about this, this hand-leaning within the first couple chapters, I assumed it was the same thing. I assumed that it was to transfer the sin of the individual onto the animal. But in the Day of Atonement, what happens to the scapegoat after he pronounces the sins of Israel over it? He's released off into the wilderness, He actually doesn't go into the presence of the Lord at the altar. He goes out into the wilderness. What's the implication there? Can sin enter into God's presence? No. So what's happening with the hand-leaning right is not necessarily a transferal of sin, because that would make the animal then sinful. You know, the symbolizing is that it's sinful has now sin in it. And therefore, it wouldn't be fit to go into God's presence. Instead, it's saying, I identify with this animal. This perfect life is going to take my place. So whatever this animal does from this point forward, that is me doing it. And whatever it does, he's doing it for me. It's it's that idea of substitution, right? It's this idea of substitution. So So the blameless one needs to... Be blameless in order to do what it needs to do on behalf of the sinner. So this gesture, Morales says, leaning his hand heavily upon the animal's head is a dramatic declaration that he is this animal and it is taking his place in the ritual. Unable to ascend God's holy mountain himself, the Israelite will ascend through his blameless substitute. That's the picture that's going on here. So after the hand leaning right, then there's the slaughter right. This is the most fun thing. I know Kate would love to do this. So after leaning on the animal, worshiper would take a knife, and he would cut the throat of the animal, thus killing it. 
And this is a, this is a symbol of communication, that he, the willingness to die to oneself. So remember the, the death of the animal, whatever the animal does from this point forward, it's representative of the person. So this communicates the willingness to die to oneself along with the acknowledgement and submission to the judgment of God that the soul that <coughs> sins shall surely die. So the blameless one dies in the place of the individual. This is a willingness to suffer or a willingness to die to oneself and acknowledgement of the judgment of God upon sin. So the sin isn't transferred to the animal, and so therefore he's not dying for the sin that he has in the animal. This is a picture of, or so the, so the spotless one is not dying for himself. The spotless one is dying for the person who is sinful. Does that make sense? The perfect for the sinner. That's the slaughter rite. So you have this dead animal in your hand. <clears throat> then what would happen? Look at Leviticus 17. <clears throat> when we think about blood, what do we think about? Life or death? Life or death? Both. Both? Okay. I normally just think about death. Right? So Jesus spilled his blood for me. What did Jesus do for me? He died. Look at Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the what? For the life of the flesh is in the what? The blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The focus here in Leviticus with the blood is not necessarily death. That's represented by the killing of the animal. But the blood poured out is representative of what? Life. The life is spilled out. The idea here is the blameless one gives his life in the place of the sinner's life. So the blood manipulation, they would throw it on the altar, they would throw it on on the curtain, they would throw it all over the place. And it was symbolically um, conveying, um, offering up one's life to God. So remember, the animal dies, that's dying to self, spills the blood, that's offering up life to God. And then it also probably had this purging or this cleansing agent to it as well. So life covering death, life um, cleansing of sin. And so Morales says this, um, probably the blood served as a purging agent as well, a detergent purifying the sacred objects from the pollution of the Israelite worshiper's sin and expiating or cleansing of sin that came from, God, or, uh, from God's sight. So cleansing of sin from God's sight. And we kind of saw that in the Exodus as well. Right? So with the hyssop branch, <clears throat> manipulating the blood, putting it on the, on the doorpost, that was, that was a sign of cleansing. Right? So the life here is the life poured out to God, the life purifying from sin. And that was the significance of the blood manipulation after the slaughtering of the animal. So where are we at so far? Presenting the sacrifice, a perfect one in the place of the sinner. The hand-leaning right, this is me, this animal is me, and whatever happens to it from this point forward is, is the, me experiencing that through vicariously through the animal. The slaughter right, dying to self, blood manipulation, 
the pouring out of life to God. Next is the burning rite. <clears throat> so after blood manipulation, part or the whole of the animal is burned up and turned into smoke on the altar. Now in this section, um, Morales primarily focuses on, in his book, um, he primarily focuses on the ascension offering because the ascension offering is kind of like the quintessential, like the, the, the par excellence version of this burning rite. When you do the ascension offering, you would take the whole animal and you'd burn the whole thing on the altar and all of it would turn into smoke, right, minus the skin. And, um, and, but then throughout the, different, throughout the different sacrifices, you'll see that they'll may, they might take parts of the animal, um, they might just burn part of it rather than the whole. But we're going to be talking primarily about the ascension offering, um, mainly because it seems like throughout Genesis um, and in Leviticus, the ascension offering is really the whole Old Testament as a whole. The ascension offering is like this summation of all offerings unto the Lord. We see it in Genesis when, uh, when Noah <clears throat> uh, is parked on Mount Ararat, and he gives an offering to the Lord, and he burns it up, and it turns into a sweet aroma that rises to the Lord. That would be an ascension offering. Abraham, after he offers up Isaac as a sacrifice, and God provides the ram in his place, he gives an ascension offering as well. He burns it on, on the altar, and it turns into this smoke that's a sweet aroma to the Lord. At the end of 2 Samuel... We're not going to go through this in depth, but at the end of 2 Samuel, God plagues Israel so that 70,000 men die. And how does it end? How does that plague end? David offers up ascension offerings to the Lord in order to atone for their sin, and the Lord relents. Um, <clears throat> the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle was called, or in the courtyard, was called the, the altar of the ascension offering. So this is like a very important offering. And, and, and the, the, the central act in it was to burn the animal so that it turned into smoke. Here's a quote from the book. It says, All other offerings throughout the day were placed upon and constituted additions to the daily, additions to the daily ascension offering. Moreover, when the other sacrifices offer merely a portion of the animal in the burning rite so that it ascends as a pleasing aroma to, the, to God, <clears throat> these should be seen as token ascension Offerings. Okay. Ascension offering is really important. You guys, that's all I'm communicating there, right? So what are the things that we need to highlight within, within the ascension offering? First, there's this idea of consecration to the Lord. We already talked about this a little bit. So they put the animal on the altar, and then they would burn it completely. And that burning completely is an idea of consecration to the Lord. You're offering it up completely to the Lord. Um. We, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I know we're going to get to this in week eight, implications in the New Testament for our own lives. But we kind of understand this when we read um, Roman, Romans 12, excuse me, <clears throat> Romans 12. It says to offer up our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. What does that mean? Does that mean to give ourselves partially to the Lord? No, it's, it's talking about full consecration to the Lord. I'm setting myself apart unto the Lord. I'm going to live my life like that. That's what's happening here in the Ascension offering. So that's the first thing we want to highlight um, with this offering. Secondly, <clears throat> there's this idea of transformation. There's this idea of transformation. So the animal, as it's burnt, 
it doesn't just go away and disappear. It's actually transformed from the animal into what? Smoke. So there's this idea of transformation. Morales and, and, and Meredith Klein and others, they argue this is a picture of trans, the transformation necessary in order to ascend to the presence of the Lord. The blameless one himself is not blameless enough, in other words. There still needs to be a transformation that happens before he's able to enter into the presence of the Lord and ascend, to be an aroma that pleases God. So this transformation is a picture of, you guys are probably getting it, sanctification, a picture of sanctification. Um, So the sacrifice is transformed into a medium fitting to ascend. Thirdly, and we've kind of already talked about this a bunch, there's the idea of ascension into the actual heavenly abode. So we take these things together, and we can see how this, uh, this is applied to our own lives as well. We have complete consecration to the Lord, but then we need to be sanctified in order to enter into God's presence, right? And not just, not just initial sanctification. When I say initial sanctification, when you're first set apart and you're saved, and you're justified, you're set apart for God, that's initial sanctification. Then you have progressive sanctification, where you are growing in holiness unto the Lord, Right, you're becoming more and more fit to enter into God's presence, in other words. That's all of grace, by the way, right? But then when you die, even if you're more sanctified than when you started your walk with Christ, are you ready to enter into the presence of God? No, you're not. What needs to happen still? You need to be glorified. That's that final sanctification. You need to be finally transformed into your glorified body, into your, your, the image of the Son, so that then you can enter into God's presence. So there's that transformation that needs to happen in, t- in order to enter into God's presence. This was a picture of that in the Old Testament. So we have <clears throat> the, the, the animal pouring out its life to God, fully being consecrated, transformed in order to ascend into his presence. Next, this leads um, to really the goal of all of this, the goal of ascending, the goal of entering into God's presence, which is uh, communion, so the communion rite. So the peace offering is an example of the communion rite. This would be um, when they would enjoy a meal together um, in the presence of God. So upon ascending into the heavenly abode of God, the Israelite enjoys hospitality in the house of God. So the Israelite worshiper in the communion rite, or like with the, in the peace offering, in the case of the peace offering, they would receive a portion of the sacrificial animal to enjoy with family and friends in the presence of God. So, and, and, and then really throughout the Bible, we see God as being like this, this, this host who invites us into a meal with him, to, have, to enjoy communion with him in his presence. In Psalm 23, 5, you guys know this passage, <clears throat> Um, David says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. In Psalm 36, you have another picture of 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 a meal going on. They are amply sated, Psalm 36, 8, 9, they are amply sated by the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. 
So the fact that the Israelite could enter the presence of God at all is a remarkable thing in and of itself, right? That alone, the fact that they even have an opportunity to is mind-boggling. The God of the universe created us. We've sinned against him. We, we, have, no, we have no business being there. Now, to, to, offer, to give an offering to God, that makes some sense, right? We, we sacrifice to the God who gave us life. That makes some sense. But then for that, for that offering then to lead to fellowship and enjoying a meal in the presence of God, that, um, Morales says in his book, that is the marvel of the cultists and of Israel's covenant. The fact that we have a God that doesn't only desire to have things sacrificed to him, but that he actually wants us to sit at his table and enjoy fellowship with him, communion with him. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> yes, you can ask a quick question. Sorry, yes, cultus, and I've been using that term. Sorry about that. Cultus is this, just the idea of worship, the worship service. Um, so when we talk about the like cult, it's the, it communicates the idea of wor- a worship. So the cultus is the order of worship. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. <clears throat> okay, this all leads to then the benediction, which closes the ceremony. So cleansing, Morales says this, cleansing is, the sake of, is for the sake of sanctification. Sanctification is for the sake of blessing found in communion and fellowship with God. So when you come into, present, when you come into God's presence, <clears throat> it is either for blessing or for judgment. If you come in, and you do what you're supposed to do, the way that God prescribes, if you enter into his presence the way God, God prescribes, then you will receive blessing. If you come in and try to, uh, uh, try to approach God in a way that he did not prescribe, then what do you receive? Judgment. You receive judgment. And that's what happens in um, Leviticus 10, and we're going to get there in just a second. Really briefly, we're not even going to really cover it. So we shouldn't see the blessing, though, um, that we receive through the sacrifice, or the Israelites shouldn't have seen the blessings that he receives through the, the sacrifices as something that he did on, or earned on his own. These sacrifices are not a picture of what the Israelite could do, but of what God does for the Israelite. So God revealed the cultic, the worship, legislation for all of this. That's something that God did. God cleanses Israel through the rite of atonement, through these sacrifices. God consecrates Israel through the burning of the offerings. God blesses Israel through the benediction of the high priest. And that benediction is given in Numbers 6, um, verses 23 to 27. Let's read that briefly. Read that quickly. Numbers chapter 6. This would be an example of the benediction. I remember... uh, preaching on Psalm 67, maybe it was like five years ago, when we were still at Stockdale. Was that five years ago, maybe? And uh, I referenced the ironic blessing, and then I couldn't find it in the Bible because I wrote down the wrong verse. So as I was writing this verse down um, this week, I was like, you better not write it down wrong. Um, <clears throat> you live and you learn. The ironic blessing in verse 22 of chapter 6 of Numbers, we'll start in uh, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So that, so benediction, by the way, is just, it's blessing. It's pronouncing a blessing over the people. And that's how the, that's how the sacrificial rite, or that's how the sacrificial um, ritual would end. So, summarize real quickly. Blameless one takes the place of the sinner. Dies, offers up his life to God fully consecrated, transformed, and ascends into God's heavenly abode. For the end of what? To the end of what? Communion with God around his table, enjoying a meal for the sake of blessing, right? So that's all communicated within these sacrifices. So as we're reading it, I hope that, that, we're, that, we're, that we're pausing and, and thanking God for the ways that he's provided this way to enter into his presence, and then we see it more fully from this side of history as we know what Jesus did on our behalf um, and is doing in and through us in our life as we continue to be sanctified and transformed into his image. So having reviewed the sacrificial components for the Israelite worshiper in general terms, we can see that the sacrifices represented a cultic journey, a worship journey into the presence of God, a journey up the mountain of God to the end of communion and blessing. But now... Just as we started the, the, the day with looking at the crisis of Moses not being able to enter into the tent of meeting, um, there's a new crisis that comes in. Look at chapter 10 of Leviticus. <clears throat> the death of Nadab and Abihu. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Pause and think about the audacity. Nadab and Abihu just witnessed the Lord's voice telling them what to do in order to enter into his presence. They saw the sacrifices accepted by God in chapter 9. And they think, let's go try and do it our own way. That's a big lesson for us that we don't enter God's presence our own way. We do it his way, right? We do it his way. We don't do it by our works. We do it through the gospel. Jesus, the blameless one who took our place and died on the cross for our sins, was buried and resurrected for us. Um, this crisis introduces a new problem. Um, the newly consecrated cosmos, the, the tabernacle that represents the universe, meant to be the cultic stand-in for the true cosmos, polluted by sin, will be defiled by Nadab and Abihu's disobedience and then be polluted by their corpses that are within the tabernacle. How this crisis provides the context for the book's next movement is the subject of the next chapter, and that's the next thing that we're going to cover next week. So we're going to be talking about cleansing the temple 
or the tabernacle next week. Any questions on what we covered today? Yes. The idea that the sacrifice is the food of God. Could you clarify that? Mm-hmm. Um, man, I'm not I'm not super familiar with that concept or idea. the The idea um, maybe that that's it's something that pleases the Lord. It's something that that ascends to the Lord. It talks about the the ascension offering, the 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 smoke being a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Um, the ones that eat are are the one are the Israelite worshiper with his family in, in the the communion rite, and then Aaron and his sons with the grain offerings. But I'm not I'm not. That's a good question. I have to look more look up more on that. Any other questions? Sweet. Either that was super clear or not clear enough. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for your kindness to us. Thank you for um, the book of Leviticus and the richness, the richness that it contains, um, just understanding what it means to approach you and what is necessary. It's hard as a, as a Christian to read this and not see all the implications flying all over our New Testaments that we see so clearly in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us and the implications for our lives that we, man, we are not holy enough to enter into your presence. Even after years of sanctification, after years of you purging us of our sin, we, we can never ascend on our own. We can never fit what the Bible says is necessary of the character of those that are able to ascend the mountain of the Lord. We needed another and so we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for, for, for giving him to us, our sacrificial lamb who takes away our sins, who stands in our place, who bore the judgment that we deserved so that we could experience life and blessing and communion with you forever. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to pursue sanctification knowing that that is what pleases you. And we look forward to the day when we be fully sanctified, transformed into the image of your son, and, and where we can enjoy true joy and true fullness in your presence forever. I pray that the rest of this, this morning would be an honoring to you, that we would sing to one another, encourage one another, that we would um, be praying for one another and bearing each other's burdens, that the word would be preached clearly, that Christ would be exalted in all of it, that you would be glorified in our worship together. I praise in Jesus' name, amen.